Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to the Age of Jackson podcast. I am your host, Daniel Golotta, PhD student in American Religious History at Stanford University. The Age of Jackson podcast is sponsored by Andrew Jackson's Hermitage, located in Nashville, Tennessee, one of Tennessee's best museums. Check it out next time you're in Nashville. Today on the podcast, I am talking with Sarah Pearsnall of Cambridge University is located at Robertson College. She earned her bachelor's degree from Yale University and a master's degree from uh, Clare College at Cambridge University. And she received her MA and PhD in American history at Harvard University. Uh, Today, we are talking about her new book, Polygamy and Early American History, available via Yale University Press. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. I got to be, as an Australian, I was so used to calling people doctor, um, becoming from the Commonwealth, but then I moved to America and everyone's professor. And I started doing that to um, Australian colleagues and UK colleagues. And like, no, 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 professor means something over here. So yeah, that's fine. Anyway, <laughs> well, either way, good. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm really curious in your book, uh, Polygamy, of all the things to write about, how did you come to write a book about polygamy? What's the origin story? Well, why do people get so upset about other people marrying in what they perceive to be the wrong way? Um, that was a question that interested me in the early 2000s from both a contemporary and a historical perspective. Um, When I first started working on this project, there were major debates about same-sex marriage, which were at the center of politics. And marriage controversies also kept emerging in my research. And I had long been interested in the history of households, families, and sexualities. And in the course of research on my first book about Anglo-Atlantic families in the late 18th century, I started to notice an image of an anti-sentimental household, the harem, which was supposedly ruled only by lust, greed, and fear, never true affection. I also was teaching a class on travel narratives, an undergraduate class, and I also kept seeing references to practices of polygamy in that class. And I started to wonder why so many early modern people cared about polygamy. And I couldn't find a lot of discussion about that. There were only two books focusing on the early modern history of polygamy. They both centered on European intellectual developments with little time for Americans beyond Mormons and very few women in evidence. They're pretty old. They're from the early 70s. Not all that up to date. And I became kind of concerned about that. And at the same time, most of the studies of early American colonialism that I was reading treated polygamy as sort of local color in the background of the main story. 
But as I observe in the book, different ideas about households were not the backdrop for the drama. Sometimes they were the drama. I wanted to know more about that drama and the women and men who shaped it. And that's why I decided to work on this seemingly strange topic of polygamy. Uh, I'm deeply interested in polygamy because uh, I'm very cliche because uh, I do a lot in religious studies with Mormonism. So polygamy mm-hmm. is unavoidable. Um, uh, but um, and it's just funny. I uh, I wrote the encyclopedia entry for the women women and religion encyclopedia, and I got oh. the polygamy entry. So like trying to sum up the whole Christian tradition of polygamy in 500 words was not easy. But no, um, challenging. <laughs> but one of the things I found challenging, um, and something I want to ask you about, is just from a definitional point of view. For your purposes in the book, what do you mean by polygamy exactly? Because it has such a long, rich history in just human culture around the world, period. So what do you mean by polygamy in your work? And how is that different, say, from bigamy or polyandry? Okay, so polygamy is marriage with more than one spouse. It's, it is, in base definition, not gender-specific. Polyandry is the practice of marriage with multiple husbands. Polygyny or polygyny is with multiple wives. Bigamy is essentially a version of polygamy, just three spouses. My definition of polygamy partly hinges on a distinction between polygamy and bigamy because bigamy often implies in legal cases that the spouses don't know about each other. So secret marriage, you know, a man with kind of wives in every port who don't know about each other is prosecuted under bigamy law. I was interested in the public practice or advocacy of polygamy where the spouses did know about each other. So I chose to use polygamy rather than bigamy. I also look at the distinction between polygamy, which is both a kind of imagined notion of this kind of marriage and plural marriages, which are which is a more neutral term for those marriages. So when I look at lived experience, I think more about plural marriage. So (laughs) a complicated answer to your simple definitional question. I mean, it's, it's great, but it's just, uh, again, back to the Mormons, like right off the bat, when we think of American polygamy, I think a lot of people, you know, random Joe or Jane off the street, if we say polygamy in America, people say Mormons, Utah, things like that. But right off the bat, you say that that's a really bad reading in your introduction and that things are way more complicated um, about that. Um, And you go about dispelling some of these ideas. So just to tease my listeners before we get into the weeds, what are are some uh, myths you want to bust when it comes to polygamy in early America? Well, partly I want people to take away that the history of controversies over polygamy in North America did not begin with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. In my telling, they are at the end of the story. In fact, I think there were so many debates over polygamy in the early modern period, and that people who fought against it were so successful in obliterating it, that they have sort of caused this historical amnesia. 
even professional historians of U.S. history were often surprised when I was working on the book and they would say, what are you working on? I would say early American polygamy. And of course, they would assume I meant the Mormons. And I would say, no, it's really mostly about the 17th and 18th century. And I was actually a little surprised myself by how much I found. But in fact, polygamy and plural marriage is factored into all kinds of encounters between many different kinds of people, various Native American groups, Europeans, Africans, in the context that gave rise to the modern United States. And its surprising history tracks through a lot of those communities, through the colonies, through all the regions of continental U.S. and beyond, and into the new American nation. And I was actually surprised myself at how many kind of pivotal moments, um, such as King Philip's War, missionary activity in uh, New France, the Pueblo Revolt, um, Enlightenment, Revolution, mission, further missions and settlement, westward movement, all of those things, there were moments where polygamy was a flashpoint. And that became really interesting to me. I do talk about the controversies surrounding the Mormons, but I do so only really primarily in the last chapter of the book, um, partly because I did want to make the point that, in fact, there is this very long prehistory. Before we get into multiple spouses, we probably should start with one-on-one. -on -one. Jumping up to a God's eye perspective in the American colonies in the early Republic, what is marriage, quote-unquote, meant to look like exactly? What's the expectations in very broad, broad brushes um, uh, when it comes to marital expectations and marital life? Well, of course, there are there's a, a great diversity of marriages in early America um, isn't always remembered, but I think um, Anne Plain's work on colonial New England and different sort of layers of marital regimes in New England, for example, shows that variety really well. There are English legal ideals. There are less legal partnerships, cohabitation, separations of various kinds and various indigenous practices of marriage, such as plural marriages. Um, it's not just colonists, obviously, who are marrying in early America. And um, so I think it's important to think about that. Even within the colonies, of course, there's diversity. There are Catholic colonies in New France, New Mexico, um, both of which I talk about in the book. And there are Protestant English colonies, Dutch colonies, such as those in New England, which I also consider. For most colonists, marriage was highly significant. Not everyone married, of course, but most did. Um, and as one Protestant writer put it in 1632, marriage hath a double end. The first end is the beginning of children. The second end is a remedy against lust. For Catholics, marriage was a sacrament inferior to the celibacy of priests and monks and nuns, but a sacrament all the same. For Protestants, it was a secular relationship that also had religious overtones, a civil tie as well as a religious one. 
for most people in these colonies, for most of this period, it was supposed to last for life. It was supposed to be indissoluble. You could not remarry, even if you were granted a separation by a court. And that is the ideal, whether you're happy in the marriage or not. Of course, there were unhappy marriages then as now. And of course, it's also a system that is weighted legally in favor of men. Women took on the legal status of femme couvert, in which their legal identities were subsumed by their husbands. Her property, in theory, became his. The reality, of course, is more complex, but nevertheless, that is the basic understanding. In a world with limited birth control, as the early modern world was, it also usually means children, the beginning of children, for many decades, potentially. But of course, marriage is also a privilege, and it benefits people, too. One of the reasons that enslaved people in Protestant colonies do not have a legal right to it. It's a contractual uh, situation that brings both rights and obligations to the people involved. Nevertheless, enslaved people did marry, and that's a paradox that I also think about in the book. One of the things you tease out very early on in the book is the conflicting marriage practices uh, amongst the Native Americans in comparison to European colonists, whether they be uh, Catholic or Protestant. I know there are so many different tribes and nations to speak about, but for the purposes of um, just getting the information out there, what are some of these differences amongst Native Americans um, when it comes to their marital practices? How are they different? Well, of course, as you rightly point out, there is considerable diversity. As far as I can tell, the the most major sort of set of nations who did not practice polygamy were the Haudenosaunee, um, who on the whole did not practice plural marriage, but they are something of an outlier. Most other Native American nations practice some form of polygamy sometimes concubinage as well. It is practiced in most regions of what is now the continental United States, but it's usually quite a limited practice, often restricted to high-ranking leaders or healers. Powerful, well-resourced men. So it's a way both to demonstrate and to consolidate power and status and resources. So it's important in organizing native societies and politics and in marking out inequalities, not just between men and women, but between different men and different women. It is also therefore significant in encounters with Europeans because missionaries, for instance, often targeted those very leaders who were polygamous. That often meant that polygamy ends up at the center of these controversies and sometimes massacres and rebellions. But polygamy is part of a larger system in which kinship and family are highly significant, where they constrain the actions of both men and women, 
and where they also form a way of organizing labor. It could be a way to integrate captives from war. Sometimes they became secondary wives. Sometimes it's a way, therefore, to sort of organize that work. And certainly when Europeans encounter it, they're very um, interested in its practice, even though, as I note, it is limited usually to an elite. Something I found really interesting is just, you know, showing my biases as a historian of religion were those um, missionary efforts. But something I found really fascinating is the kind of um, self-awakening many missionaries have when they have to deal with the fact that um, many of the Hebrew patriarchs in the Bible um, are polygamous. Um, you know, and there's in the Reformation, there's that great um, problem when Prince Philip uh, tries to take a second wife and Martin Luther's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, but uh, could you talk more about uh, missionary efforts to stop polygamy and also the internal debates they have about um, the Bible and polygamy? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, it is notable, and I will observe, it has been observed by Protestants in particular for several hundred years, that of course, as you say, many of the most blessed of the Old Testament patriarchs, such as Abraham, Jacob, Solomon, practiced polygamy. At the same time, nowhere in the Bible is the practice of polygamy explicitly condemned. This is a problem. It is a problem for Protestants in particular, because, of course, many Protestants want to return to aspects of the Mosaic law. They want their societies to be consonant with Old Testament practices. And for some of the most radical ones, such as the Anabaptist in Munster in the 16th century, they allegedly put polygamy into practice. Even those who reject polygamy still are troubled by it. And you can see this in the discussions from various Puritan and other theologians of the period. They try to figure out how it can be, and John Cotton in New England is one of them. He gives a sermon about it, how it can be that Old Testament patriarchs could practice polygamy and be blessed and excused by God, but the modern, they think that maybe the Old Testament patriarchs had what they called a dispensation, but they're not absolutely sure. They also think that maybe not knowing that it was a sin sort of contributes, but that since modern people do know it's a sin, it is unacceptable for them to practice. One of the most um, kind of amazing uh arguments in favor of polygamy comes from John Milton, the Puritan poet who is famous most of all for his depiction of Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost. The story of Adam and Eve is, of course, often used as an argument for monogamy, that God made man and woman and not man and two women, and therefore it is the basis for monogamy. He finds no weight in that. And he argues that polygamy is either marriage or, as he puts it, it is whoredom or adultery. And he says, if you respect the Old Testament patriarchs, you cannot say it is whoredom and adultery. And therefore, it must be an acceptable form of union. He didn't publish 
this justification in his lifetime. But nevertheless, these ideas are in circulation. And I think it sort of gnaws at Puritans in particular who want to be consonant with Old Testament practice that this polygamy exists. And of course, when they meet Indians who also practice it, it further complicates the matter. Jumping on the flip side, um, getting in the mind of a missionary who is arguing pro-monogamy, what type of uh, methodological, argumentative, theological, uh, legal, how are they How are they engaging in that discourse to say monogamy is the way to go? What's their logic? Well, sometimes uh, Native people do point out this inconsistency in the Bible um, and it is vexatious. Partly there is a response about God's plan in the modern day and how that differs from ancient practices. Some of it is about emphasizing for Catholic missionaries the sacramental nature of monogamous indissoluble marriage. Protestants skirt the issue, but they reject polygamy as a form of problematic practice for the most part. But there are always radical voices, I would say, in every century, radical Protestant thinkers and writers who do make an argument in favor of polygamy. Getting closer to um, the uh, early republic, do we have any uh, clue um, how widespread men uh, marrying two women or having a wife in different ports, so to speak. Is there any way we can get some kind of, maybe not statistical, but the gist of it anyway? Um, how widespread is this? I mean, enough to write a book, obviously, but... Enough to write a book. Um, I mean, it remains the practice among many Native American groups. It's a practice among various others at other moments. Um, and it's also a source of continued discussion moving into the early republic. Um, it's something that I argue is connected with the sort of political basis um, for especially men's relationship with other men. We often think that polygamy is rejected in the modern period with enlightenment thinking because it is a damage to women. And although there are arguments about that, there are also arguments about the damage it does to men. And the argument is that it really foregrounds and consolidates inequality so that if one man takes several wives, it means other men do not have wives. And this and it also damages relations between men. So I look at some Enlightenment discussions about polygamy in the 18th century, discussions that continue into the early Republic period and that also continue into the Mormon period, in which there is this argument that essentially it sort of creates systems of tyranny and despotism to have men practice polygamy and that the equality required for the American Republic means that it has to be foreground it has to be about monogamy because that's the most egalitarian system for men. Not so much for women, although that comes into it too, but really at some basic level for men. 
your book uh, offers uh, quite a few examples of the logic of polygamy in terms of motivations. So I'm kind of curious, uh, putting us in their perspective, why do people do it in the first place? Well, it's, of course, a complicated system. Um, partly what became interesting to me was that polygamy often indicates a wider set and sort of set of principles and ways of structuring households and society that are distinctive to what we tend to think of. Of course, for men, it's often a way to consolidate and augment authority. It shows that they commanded enough in terms of resources to be able to take multiple wives. And of course, it also generated further household resources and children who further established kind of kinship diplomatic, political, economic connections of various kinds. But what was partly interesting to me was that women sometimes chose polygamy too. And I think that although wives, we tend to think that wives in polygamy are sort of duped or seduced into it, this is a common assumption which dates in fact from this early modern period, I think that we need to think more about women choosing out of what their options are. One woman whom I discuss in the book is Widamu, a New England sachem or leader who is related by marriage to King Philip or Medicom, who they ultimately lead a war against the English in the 1670s. She is herself the leader of the Pocassets. She chooses a new husband who is also the sachem of the Narragansett. She decides to do this even though it means she will be his third wife, which is usually a, a somewhat more subordinate position than being the first wife in a polygamous union. And I think we therefore have to see that she saw this as a very important diplomatic alliance. And of course, it is a way in which they do join together in the period of this war to fight the English. And I think that her marriage is also a diplomatic and political choice as well as a personal one. So I think when we think about moments like that, it shows us that our kind of um, understanding of the sort of trodden upon wives of polygamy maybe needs to be rethought. There are certainly wives who appear to be less keen, especially on being secondary wives. And one of the most interesting sources I found were indigenous language dictionaries kept by French missionaries, suggesting that women might say something like, I will not marry a married man. It's a little bit unclear whether they're rejecting polygamy full stop or whether they're rejecting the status of a secondary wife or both, but it's an intriguing source. And I think we need to think about those choices, but to assume lack of choice or lack of agency on the part of the wives is is a problem. What about the uh, legal prosecution of, uh, polyg of polygamy? How does the state and the courts get involved in haranguing those who refuse to um, stay monogamous? Well, to some degree, in these sort of public situations of polygamy, the state essentially doesn't recognize the further unions as marriages. So that's the sort of most basic way um, that the, the state simply doesn't recognize them as marriages at all. 
um, and they don't have the rights and privileges of married people. I mean, this remains the case in the United States. Um, and interestingly, I mean, it's a curious thing to me that people who think about this issue take Mormon marriages, for example, to be absolutely legal, though in this period, you know, they're often conducted in a temple, in a religious situation where they're they're outside of sort of secular law, but that other kinds of marriages, such as those between African Americans or Native Americans, are somehow considered not as legal. Um, I think partly we need to move beyond what U.S. law and colonial law recognize as marriage because it only gets us so far and it doesn't capture the sort of rich complexity of this system of marriage that's practiced by many different kinds of people in the early American landscape. In turning to the enslaved population, what do we know about uh, polygamy amongst uh, American slaves? Well, it is a practice and there are records, places like plantations where they list um, groups of enslaved people by household, where we can see that sometimes there are multiple wives. There are references to planters allowing multiple wives in certain situations. Often this is taken to be simply a kind of way that African-Americans are um, holding on to African traditions and or resisting kind of Euro-American impositions on their households. Certainly those things are happening, but partly what I tried to do in the chapter that focuses on this topic is to think about how distinctive the context for these plural marriages is in North America, as opposed to West Africa, where it had been practiced as part of a larger system, um, which was organized quite differently and where the demographics were quite different. And how, in fact, its practice in American settings isn't simply a kind of holding on to tradition, but in fact, quite an innovative strategy of certain men. Um, and I think that it is worth our time to sort of think about those differences, partly to think about this long history and also the associations that Europeans and American white Americans draw about the connection between African-Americans and polygamy and sort of what they consider and call a natural tendency in that direction. I think we need to think much harder about that sort of default assumption that there's a connection. The context in the West African setting is very different. And although there are these continued practices, I think the context is so different that in fact they represent something quite novel. And I think we also want to think about those stories that are told and undermine their power by looking at the realities of these situations. Now, the book is just full of interesting characters and stories, so much so that definitely can't talk about all of them. But uh, to tease my listeners a little bit and uh, get into the book, um, are there any favorites that jumped out to you in your time researching, uh, maybe from different races and colonies or religion? You know, maybe give us a little bit of a, sm uh, uh, a sampling, perhaps, of some of your favorite uh, case studies. 
Um, sure. I mean, I have to admit, I fell in love with all of them. <laughs> um, and each one, um, it, partly because the book does cover a broad territory um, in terms of geography and chronology, there are quite a lot of stories. Uh, one that became really fascinating that I was able to track through a lot of different kinds of sources was a story involving a native leader named Mackie Bistichu. Um, who encountered French Jesuits in the area around the St. Lawrence River in the 1630s. He agreed to everything that the Jesuits wanted. He converted to Christianity and he preached about it with one critical exception. As the Jesuits put it, he kept all the commandments except that one about having only one wife. I became really interested in why he refused, despite his otherwise seeming zeal for Christianity, to give up his three wives. And I also became obsessed with finding out as much as I could about those wives and about the context for those wives. Um, and in trying to understand why he wouldn't give it up, and because we have these amazing sources, the Jesuit relations, where the Jesuit leader Paul Lejeune records these conversations and debates that he has um, about this issue. We're sort of able to kind of get at it in a way that's usually almost impossible. And partly what's interesting is that although there are sort of many reasons around love, lust, pride, violence, and family that I track through to, to sort of explain his refusal. He also notes that when he preaches about monogamy, the women don't like it. And he says, since they're more numerous than the men, if a man can only marry one of them, the others will have to suffer. So this doctrine is not to their liking. That was really interesting to me. Um, there are demographic disparities because of war in particular in this tough 17th century period. And of course, they may have also found his hypocrisy galling because they know he has three wives himself. Um, but it just became interesting to me why women might have found that not to their liking. Um, and that the assumption that they would always want to escape polygamy, that actually it may not have been so simple. So I became intrigued to sort of understand that context and to also tell the story of this one marriage. There are plenty of others. Um, I look at various, I mean, things like the Pueblo revolt, as I noted, um, where there's this claim that you can, you know, take a have multiple wives if you're a successful warrior in the Pueblo revolt that Pope, the leader, supposedly gives this kind of promise. And I also became interested in what that promise meant. And again, how it's in fact an innovative strategy of particular men who are seeking status rather than simply a kind of clinging to tradition, which is usually how it has been cast. I also tracked through kind of high enlightenment theories, which became weird and interesting to me. Um, I look at moments around the American Revolution and strange controversies over polygamy in 1780 in both Connecticut and England, um, looking at these moments where Protestants are endorsing polygamy publicly. Um, and I end with the Mormons. And um, there are some obviously really rich and interesting stories there, 
as well. Uh, polygamous with your subjects, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I it's hard to choose one. <laughs> now, seeing as we are on the Andrew Jackson podcast and we're sponsored by Andrew Jackson's Hermitage, I feel like glare the elephant in the room for many of my listeners is the marriage scandal that involves andrew jackson and rachel donison uh with their bigamy legal troubles that gets all the hot um hot temper um and uh juicy gossip of the elections of 1824 and 1828 could you tell my listeners more about this scandal uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very different sort of marriage case than most of the ones that I look at. But I think the situation with the Jackson shows, as my book also does, this close connection between intimate choices and political standing in early America. Um, I mean, it makes my point very clear that um, forms of marriage other than straightforward, indissoluble monogamy are politically incendiary in early America because marriage really matters to early Americans for all kinds of reasons. Um, as I understand it, this is essentially kind of related to the sort of secret bigamy or kind of concerns um, over bigamy that I didn't focus on, though there are many of them and they are a rich topic to consider but that um, that Rachel had been married prior to marrying Jackson and that her marriage had not been fully legally ended by the time she married Jackson. So that therefore she was bigamous. Um, and that obviously becomes a source of political tension of scandal, partly because I think it is a period in the late 18th century where women are finding their feet in new ways in their ability to bring divorce cases forward. So the fact that this divorce case exists, that divorce is a practice that Rachel um, follows, is relatively new for many people, and it remains a somewhat shocking thing. Um, and I think the fact of this sort of uh, muddiness of the legal situation is also something that is very familiar to me working in this terrain. Um, how the law defines these marriages is not necessarily how people themselves define it. When they feel the marriage is over, may not be when the state sees it as being over. And that sort of um, sort of complicated liminal space is something that I think um, plagued the Jacksons as well. Um, and I think partly this sort of whiff of sexual and domestic scandal that surrounded the Jacksons fits my point more broadly about the negative images of anything that is outside of indissoluble lifelong monogamy. Towards the end of your book, you talk about this really fascinating um, book that I just, I'd never heard of this thing before. Uh, Belinda Hilton's A Defense of Polygamy by a Lady. I love that title, by a lady, um, which, as you point out, is full of um, interesting things to unpack. Could you tell my listeners about this book and what's, it, what's involved in it? Um, I would be delighted to. I mean, this is one of the many stories in which I became, you know, just obsessed. Um, Belinda Pratt was a woman like Rachel who had left her first legal husband, Benjamin Hilton. She did so in order 
to run away and join the Latter-day Saints. Like Rachel Jackson, it's unclear whether her first marriage was legally ended when she married in the LDS church, a leader in that church, and a confidant of Joseph Smith's, Parley Pratt. Parley Pratt is one of the earliest, most vigorous missionaries in Mormonism. He also was a prolific writer and printer. And that is an important background because it's obviously partly with his encouragement that Belinda ends up publishing what is the first published defense of polygamy by an American woman, this defense of polygamy by a lady in 1854. This is not long after the public pronouncement of polygamy by the saints in Utah, and it is written in the form of a disapproving uh, of a letter to her disapproving non-Mormon sister in New Hampshire. It's purportedly explaining why plural marriage is a reasonable system for her and her sister wives. I think the idea that it's an actual letter, which is often sort of how it's been treated in the literature, is a bit of a red herring. I mean, it's obvious that that's a genre in the mid-19th century in which women can safely publish fairly provocative claims to put it in an epistolary form um, as simply a letter to her sister. And I think that that's what's partly going on here. Um, as a result, maybe of that, this tract has never received a great deal of analysis. It's received limited treatment among Mormon historians, though it has received some there. And it is not mentioned at all in basically any of the general intellectual histories of polygamy. Admittedly, it is not a very long tract, but I think it's an incredibly rich and interesting one. Um, partly to me, it was a way to add a kind of intellectual history of women and Mormon polygamy to the rich social histories of those topics that already exist. And it was really interesting to me to think about a wider intellectual context for Belinda's defense, um, which were not just about Mormonism, though obviously that's very important, but in fact, a woman-centered defense of a different kind of marriage and household that connects her with feminist writers of various other sorts, like Margaret Fuller and Lydia Maria Child, who also um, offer some condemnations of systems of monogamy. And partly the writing helps us answer why women were willing to adopt and live in polygamy. Um, and of course, there is a theological aspect, like these other Earlier Protestant writers, people like Belinda Pratt, pointed to the practice of marriage in plural marriages in the Old Testament, including that of Abraham. But what's interesting is that she emphasizes the agency of Sarah, Abraham's first wife, who suggests that uh, taking a second wife or concubine would be a good idea. Um, and that that sort of emphasis on Sarah is a distinctive aspect to that theological um, claim about patriarchal plural marriages. Um, and there are a lot of other um, aspects of it too, which are really quite remarkable. So um, I urge readers to read it and um, also perhaps to look at my chapter on it. Before we get into some more practical questions and modernist concerns, I just was wondering to, in 
wrapping up our discussion of your book, what are the big takeaways you hope readers get from your book, um, speaking to the field writ large? My largest takeaway is, I mean, I want hasten to add, is not about polygamy or whether it's a good or a bad system or whether it should be legalized or not. I do not have any skin in that game. What I am interested in and what I was interested in doing in the book is to show how important issues around household organization, sexual practices, domestic life, and all of those things, including sort of gender and rank, were in these early American encounters. Too often, these encounters include women only in a marginal way. They still center on men's um, sort of fighting and encounters with other men. And I think that leaves out an incredibly important aspect of those encounters, which is around these households and very different ideas and practices of household and sexual organization. To my mind, that is what I most wish for readers to take away um, and where I think the significance of the book lies. And I tried to cover a wide variety of places and times to make that argument very clear that across early America and in other places too, these controversies over plural marriage led us in to a particular place of understanding about the role of gender, household, and sex in those encounters. The book does cover a lot of ground, both geographically and time-wise and different languages. I'm just curious, how did you go about researching this book and what advice would you have to grad students or your peers for embarking on such a big project like this? Any tips? Well, that is such a good question. Obviously, it was not easy <laughs> and it took me a while. Um, and partly because these plural marriages were, as I've explained, sort of always outside the bounds of Euro-American legal recognition, I obviously had to look at a wide range of sources. Partly, too, because I was interested in getting women's perspective, often for communities such as Native Americans, where they were not leaving written accounts, I also had to do quite a lot of fancy footwork to try to understand that perspective. I looked at missionary accounts, travel journals, government reports, baptismal records, usual sorts of textual evidence. But I also read a lot of scholarship in archaeology. I looked at plaza plans and ceramic motifs. I looked at subfloor pits and burial mounds. I consulted with linguistic experts and I looked at these indigenous language dictionaries. Basically, I used anything I could get my hands on to tell this story. I visited archives from Utah to Seville in Spain. And it was an incredibly interesting and rewarding, but also really challenging project on which to work. Um, I think, however, that what I would like for graduate students to take away is that simply saying there are no sources cannot be where we end the story and that one has to be more creative and more persistent and also sometimes speculative 
to suggest what might be the range of possibilities. And even if I cannot actually say for a particular individual what they could or could not do in a particular moment because I don't have the sources to do it explicitly, I think it's possible to come up with a range of sort of options that might have existed and that that is a useful way to frame even these uncertainties. But I think the uncertainties themselves are worth thinking about and talking about. Uh, polygamy has, I mean, one could argue it's always been an American fascination, but in recent years, you know, HBO's Big Love, there's Sister Wives, um, just at least with the LDS becoming more uh, more open about their past, um, there's a lot more mainstream books like Patrick Urich's House Full of Females was a bestseller. Um, although there's also the darker side as well, where all these I Escape polygamy books are bestsellers as well. Why do you think Americans are so interested in in the uh, in polygamy? And uh, I know you said you don't have a skin in the game, but I'm kind of curious. Putting your yeah, I know historians make bad profits most of the time, but putting on your profit hat, do you, what future do you think it has in the United States? Well, um, yeah, I, I'm happier talking about the past. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it's true that Americans have always been interested in polygamy. There is a particular kind of moment now that is interesting. Of course, Mormons are generally interested, more interested than many other Americans in polygamy because of the early founding of the church um, and the role of polygamy there. And I think that that is likely to continue. Um, but I also think it's about um, what I've noticed um, among especially my students, um, a growing movement towards things like polyamory, towards non-ethical, uh, to sort of um, ethical non-monogamy, um, not non-ethical monogamy, which is something different. Um, I think Americans are interested increasingly um, in alternative forms of household arrangement. I think those shows are really interesting. Um, it's very interesting to me, Big Love and Sister Wives, really normalize polygamy. In both of those shows, middle-class, suburban, fairly conservative white Christians are the people practicing polygamy. And Sister Wives in particular, I think, really makes it both a subject of exotic fascination, which is a long-standing trope, but also a very could-be-the-people-next-door kind of quality to it. And I think that's interesting. Um, I don't, however, think that it's going to be legalized anytime soon. I mean, partly there's not much of a groundswell in that direction. Partly, I think it does discomfit people because of its longstanding association with the oppression of women. And I think that um, that is a sort of longstanding issue that's unlikely to go away anytime soon. But I do think that there is increasing pressure on that older, um, more narrow way of defining marriage. And I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it was interesting to me working on this over many years um, that when I first started working on it, even my students found it rather a shocking topic. 
Um, and now I much more often have students say, yeah, I can really see that. Or they even know kind of people who live in, you know, plural arrangements of one sort or another. And so I think the, the landscape is changing, but that's as far as I'm prepared to go on the, uh, any kind of predictive aspect. Something pedagogical I'd love to get your opinion on. Sometimes I, something I struggle with is, um, teaching, at least teaching and studying American religion is sometimes students can kind of really fetishize these um, heterodox groups like, wow, like the orthodox groups are boring or they're stodgy and misogynistic and authoritarian, but these guys are like, they're the real deal. And so, you know, sometimes there can be this real romance about polygamous groups for example where it's like look how look how free love they are and it's like well like don't try and put our concept of say polyandry onto the 19 you know the 1700s the 1800s um uh, or you know like oh wow this this woman claims she's the messiah look how woke she is and it's like well it's a little bit more complicated than that you know so do you have any pedagogical advice about how perhaps um we can try and hold back sort of presentist praise to f- justify our own um, cultural political leanings um, amongst undergrads or even our own peers? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And um, there certainly are many distinctive ways of practicing marriage um, that continue to have a lot of patriarchal privilege in them, even in situations of group marriage, certainly in in some practices of plural marriage, indeed, probably most practices of plural marriage historically. It's mostly one man with multiple wives. It's mostly um, not a situation that necessarily helps women. Um, And I think it's worth drawing attention to that fact. Um, it's also, I have to say, not clear to me that even some of the growing polyamory movement doesn't also have some of these aspects of patriarchal privilege built into it as well. I think it's something we have to constantly be thinking about and working hard uh, to sort of establish egalitarianism. And I think we also have to teach our students that they can't condemn groups for being fuddy-duddies. They also cannot just make uh, people into heroes who happen to question that. I mean, many of these alternative systems were not particularly better for people. They still hold a lot of kind of rank and status inequalities, certainly also gender ones. And I think that's worth bringing out as well. And I know uh, this book was uh, a lot of time and effort, probably blood, uh, blood, sweat and tears. So I know it's a dangerous question to ask, but are you working on anything next or taking a breather? Um, I am. I mean, I still felt like I had a little bit more love to give to polygamy. Um, So, in fact, I'm writing um, a polygamy, a very short introduction um, for the very short introduction series that Oxford University Press does. that book will be global in its sensibility and of a much broader time span. Um, but it will sort of allow me to continue chewing over some of these interesting issues that I came to be um, quite interested in. Um, I'm also working on a global history in a completely different vein 
on the American Revolution. Um, and so I have sort of plenty to keep me occupied at the moment. And finally, uh, Dr. Pearsall, I like to end by asking my guests to meditate on my favorite James Baldwin quote, that American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. Because you're a student of history and a teacher of history, what advice would you give to your fellow students and teachers about studying and teaching American history with all its beauty and all its terror? Well... That is a wonderful quotation, and I thank you for it. Um, wonderful to hear it. I um, I think it's very correct, and um, for me, it's partly about um, centering the story of women and also thinking about children, two groups that I tried to think about some in this book. Um, and I think that that perspective is too often forgotten, and I couldn't always do as much as I wanted in that area, but it seems to me important for us all to think about that a little bit more, much of the time. You have been listening to The Age of Jackson Podcast. I have been your host, Daniel Golotta, PhD student in American Religious History at Stanford University. The Age of Jackson Podcast is sponsored by Andrew Jackson's Hermitage, located in Nashville, Tennessee. And you have been listening to my guest, Sarah Pearsonell of the University of Cambridge, talking about her latest book, Polygamy and Early American History, published with Yale University Press. Professor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.